Well, good morning, everyone. Great to have you here this morning. I would invite you at this time to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. If you're using the pew Bible that's provided for you in the rack, there in the pew it can be found on page 1008, page 1008. Now, as we come to the Word of God this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm struck with this question of what will be your final word? Now, I don't necessarily mean the exact last words that you might speak before you die, but rather the final testimony that you leave with this world. Our final words can reveal much about our character. There are some who leave a testimony of humor in their final words, like the author Oscar Wilde, who reportedly said before he died, either this wallpaper goes or I go. <laughs> there are others who leave a testimony of indulgence. Economist John Maynard Keynes reportedly said, I wish I would have drank more champagne. There are those who leave a testimony of despair, like the author James Joyce, who reportedly asked, does not anyone understand? And there are those who leave a testimony of faith, like German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said before he was killed by his Nazi captors, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Now, were these the exact words that each of these men spoke? Well, who really knows? But they do capture the essence of each person's character as they face the reality of life's end. They distill down to one or two phrases what these men were about. In our passage for this morning, we continue our study of the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. We've spent the last several Sundays focused on the faith of Abraham in verses 8 through 19. And now in verses 20 through 22, we cover the faith of Abraham's son, Isaac, his grandson, Jacob, and his great-grandson, Joseph. Now, there are many different episodes in the lives of these men that we call the patriarchs that could display what it means to live by faith. But what the author to the Hebrews does is he dedicates just one verse to each of these men displaying how their final words left a testimony of faith. The initial promise to Abraham was that he would be multiplied into a mighty nation, possessing the land of Canaan, living under the blessing of God, and in receiving that blessing, that he would spread a blessing to all the nations of the earth. As you read through the book of Genesis, you see that this promise given to Abraham is then passed from generation to generation. It's given to Isaac. Then it's passed from Isaac to Jacob, and finally from Jacob to his 12 sons, including Joseph. And it was to this promise that each of these patriarchs looked as they came to the end of their earthly lives. Hebrews 11.13 tells us 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And this is what it means to live a life of faith. What it means to have assurance of things hoped for, to have a conviction of things not seen. It means that the final word of your life is rooted in the promises of God. It means that the testimony you leave is one that reflects your hope in God's faithfulness to His promise, even if you come to the end of your life and you have not yet received that promise in full. What will your final word be? Well, those who would walk in faith must speak a word of blessing. They must speak a word of worship. And though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, through Christ Jesus, they must speak a word of victory. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 11. I'll begin in verse 17, reading through verse 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you now in this time, and we ask that you would guide us by your word and spirit, so that in your light we may see light, and in your truth we might find freedom, and in your will discover your peace for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It seems a bit of an odd episode to include in the Hall of Faith. Isaac, realizing that he is coming to the end of his life, calls in his eldest son Esau to give him a blessing. We read of this in Genesis chapter 5, that Isaac said, Behold, I'm old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, he's speaking to Esau, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now in this episode, what we see is that Isaac has the intention of passing the covenant blessing that was first given to Abraham. It passed to him. Now he is seeking to pass that on to his son Esau. And that makes sense because Esau was the eldest. He was the one that we would assume this covenant blessing would pass to. But God had other plans. You see, Isaac and his wife Rachel had difficulty conceiving, and yet after calling out to the Lord in prayer, they received the blessing of not just one son, but two. 
twin sons to be exact. Esau, again, was the firstborn, and the Word of God tells us that he was a manly man, that when he was born, he was covered in hair, right? He liked to go hunt. He'd go outdoors, and he would get game for his father. Jacob, on the other hand, was the secondborn, and the Word of God tells us that he was smooth-skinned and that he preferred to stay indoors. Now, even before they were born, the Lord revealed that the older son, Esau, would be the one who served the younger, that is, Jacob. Even as we read in Romans chapter 9, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. You see, Isaac was told that the older son, that Esau, was to serve Jacob, that the promise was to go to Jacob. And yet Isaac still planned to give the blessing to his firstborn son, his favorite son, who was good at getting him the food he enjoyed eating. Like a father willing his favorite child a double portion of the inheritance because his son brought him Big Macs on a regular basis. Now, for those of you who remember the story, Rachel conspires to trick her husband. He sends Jacob into his blind elderly father disguised as Esau. And Isaac blesses Jacob conferring upon him the mantle of covenant blessing in the Lord, that through Jacob the promise would be fulfilled. And while Rachel and Jacob went about the securing of the promise in an underhanded manner, ultimately through this the will of the sovereign Lord came about, and the blessing of the covenant fell to Jacob. So then how does this episode display the faith of Isaac? It seems like it would display that Isaac didn't have faith in the promise of God. Well, a few things to note from our verse. First, our passage doesn't make a distinction between the blessing given to Jacob and to Esau. It says in verse 20, you can look there, it says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Second, The blessing that was offered to both of his sons was future-oriented, right? He invoked future blessings. Now we see that Isaac, who would go against the plan of God, realized that God was sovereign and in control, and that because of God's power, he would bring about his covenant purposes. And third... These blessings are rooted in God's promises and not in the things that were seen. And this is what it means for your final word to be a word of blessing. You look to the future generation of believers and you speak to them of the assurance of covenant blessing based upon God's sovereign power. This is what your final word in this world must point to. Assurance of God's divine power to accomplish His purpose. Listen to this. To bless His heritage. To Abraham, God promised, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. 
I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God promised blessing upon Abraham and his children. And Isaac took hold of those promises and he spoke those promises over his children in faith. A testament of his belief in the faithfulness of God. For Jacob and Esau were still living in tents. They were still nomads. God's promise of a great nation and of a great land were still far off. But Isaac believed the promise of God and he conferred that blessing upon his children. What are you saying to the next generation of Christians? It's very easy to look at the uncertainty of a rapidly and ever-changing world and fear for the future of our children and our grandchildren. I admit that I look at the moral and cultural decay that's all around us, and I fear naturally. I fear moral laxity in our political leaders. I have anxiety about fentanyl and other drugs coming into our nation and poisoning our youth. I'm concerned about the influence of social media. I'm unnerved by the religious fervor surrounding the transgender movement. I lament that homosexuality is being normalized and targeted at our youngest of children. I worry about wars in Ukraine and Israel spreading. But hear me very clearly. It takes no faith. And in fact, it is unbelieving cowardness to invoke your future fear upon the next generation. To say to the generation that is arising with your words and your deeds, things are not going to go well with you. Do you want your final words to pass on anxiety and doubt and insecurity? Or do you want your final words to invoke the future covenant blessings that God has promised to his people? You see, of all people, Christians should be the most positive and optimistic concerning the future. Because we have the Word of God, and the Word of God tells us that blessing, not curses, are to come. It promises us paradise and eternal life. It promises the end of injustice, the end of disease, the end of pain. It promises the end of war and conflict. It promises the end of sin and death itself. It promises that Christ and all who are in Christ win. Yes, there are going to be struggles. Yes, there are going to be hardships. But these are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to the children of God. The Apostle Paul says that we are experiencing merely the pains of childbirth now. But once it is over, as soon as the baby is born, we forget all of those pains. And therefore, we need to stop giving in to the cowardness of doubt and begin in faith to invoke future blessings upon the next generation. We need to tell them, and youth, you need to hear this now. You have been chosen for blessing. You have been given the gift of the Son of God. 
The book of Romans says, if God has not withheld his son from us, will he not give us all things? Do you realize what you have in God? The promise that was to Abraham was a foreshadow. And it said that he would receive a small sliver of land in the Middle East. But the book of Romans tells us that the promise wasn't just that piece of land, but it was the whole world. Do you know that, young people? The whole world is yours through Jesus Christ. Don't give in to the fear. Don't give in to the defeatism because Christ wins. And all who are in Christ will receive that future blessing. You need to hear that. And parents, you need to tell that to your children. And grandparents, you need to tell that to your grandchildren that those who are in Christ win. I know there is fear. I know there is struggle. Don't give in to it, but speak the promise of God's word to the next generation. Don't you want that to be your final word? Do you want to say to the next generation, yeah, you know, it's just going to keep getting worse. Somebody admitted after the last service that he had a conversation with his son, and that's exactly what he told him. He goes, I feel bad for you. I look around and I see what's happening. Are you speaking those words? Are you speaking the promise that we win in Christ Jesus and there is great blessing for those who are in Him? So what will your final words be? Well, first they need to be a blessing based upon the promises of God. Not pie in the sky. By and by, right? Things are just going to be okay. No, there's going to be hardship. But through the hardship, there's victory. Another way of saying that is your final word needs to be the good news of the gospel. That there is forgiveness and life everlasting. Second, our text teaches us that our final word needs to be a word of worship. Look at verse 21. It says, By faith, Jacob, so now receiving that blessing from Isaac. Now, by faith, Jacob... When dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. At the end of his life, Jacob had come to dwell in Egypt. If you remember, his son Joseph had been sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And yet, through the Lord's providential blessing, Joseph was raised up from slavery to the height of power, second only to Pharaoh. And through the administrated giftings of Joseph, many were saved from famine. Now, during this famine, Jacob and his family moved to Egypt and was cared for by Joseph. And now living in Egypt, Jacob comes to the end of his life and he calls Joseph's two sons to his bedside to pass on the blessing of God. And through Isaac, the blessing was passed to Jacob, and now Jacob passes this blessing on to the next generation. But it's this last phrase in the verse that I want to turn our attention to because it says that he bowed in worship as he spoke these final words. What does this mean? Well, over the years, worship has become synonymous with music. And so in many churches, the worship leader isn't a pastor, it's a musician. And when we read that Jacob worshiped, we might get the idea that he sang a song, right? Joseph and the boys pulled out the guitar and they sang Amazing Grace. But in this case, worship means so much more than just singing a song. You see, worship 
may include singing, but it's so much more than that. For all of our life is to be offered as worship to God. Every moment of every day is to be lived as a spiritual sacrifice of worship to our Lord. So then what does it mean that He worshiped? Well, in John chapter 4, Jesus tells us of the two essential aspects of worship, what worship is. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Spirit and truth. You see, worship in truth means that you worship God for who He truly is and not who you imagine Him to be. To worship in truth means that you know His promises and in in particular, you know His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of His promises. This is the central motivation behind our worship. As we plan each Sunday here at Rivermont from week to week, we desire all the elements, all the prayers, all the songs, all the preaching, all the creeds to focus on the truth of who Jesus Christ is and give us as a congregation an opportunity to proclaim that. But worship is also in spirit. And this means that it is to come from a heart that believes the truth proclaimed. Jesus says of the Pharisees, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, right? They honor me with their lips. They say the right thing, but they don't believe it. We can outwardly outwardly proclaim all the right truths about God and yet not worship Him. Your worship can be vain, it can be empty, it can be lip service. True worship knows the truth of who God is through Jesus Christ and values that truth above everything else. Worship, therefore, means to value the promises of God above everything else. And because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, it means valuing Jesus Christ more than life itself. And that is why the worship of heaven consists in these words. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So what then does the text mean when it says that Jacob bowed in worship? What does this have to do with his faith? Well, it means that when he came to the end of his earthly sojourning, he was not bitter or angry or resentful that he did not receive the fullness of the reward, right? He was told that he would be one who would possess a land, but he wasn't even living in that land when he died. Rather, he said to his son and he said to his grandsons, God is worthy He said, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. He said, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that we are to receive. When everything in this world is taken from you, worship is declaring that Jesus is still enough. You see, it takes faith to worship in spirit and in truth because it means trusting the truth of a promise that you have not yet received. It means giving up the earthly city to go to the city whose designer and builder is God himself. 
what will your final word be? Will it be a word of despair? A word of bitterness? Will it be a word of fear or regret? Or will it be a word of worship that says to the next generation, Jesus is worth it all? All the struggle, all the loss, all the waiting, all the deprivation, all the disease, all the waiting. Jesus Christ is worth it all. We read in the book of Job, when everything was taken away from him, he says, or it says, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshiped God. And that must be our final testimony in this world. That as we come to that place where we are stripped of everything, all of our health and power and wealth and everything that we have built, and we come to that point, we say that God is worthy. And the next generation will see. The Lord Jesus Christ says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Will that be your testimony to the next generation? You see, your final word should be a blessing. Your final word should be a word of worship. And finally, your final word should be victorious. Look down at verse 22. There we read this. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Two things I want to point out in the text. The first is the faith to speak of the exodus. The Lord had promised that the people of Israel would live in Egypt for several generations. But in the future, he would bring his people out of Egypt, right? That there would be an exodus. This was a specific historical event that was to occur sometime in the future. And it became the central picture of God's power to save his people. In the exodus event, the Lord displayed his power over all the gods of Egypt. And through the death of the firstborn, brought his people out and returned them to the land of Canaan. In his final words, Joseph encouraged the next generation in the truth that God would return and save his people. The second thing I want you to see is that Joseph requested that his bones would be taken out of Egypt and transported to Canaan when the exodus occurred. For hundreds of years, his body rested in Egypt. But when the exodus finally occurred, the people of Israel honored Joseph's request, and we read that after the exodus, after the wilderness wanderings, after the conquest, in Joshua 24, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And from these two elements, we see Joseph's faith in the victory of God over all things. Now, it's fairly straightforward in regard to the Exodus, right? Joseph, who was at the very center of power in Egypt, who knew the might of this nation at the end of his life, spoke of the promises of God, and he had faith to believe that no matter how powerful Egypt was, the Word of God was more powerful, and God would bring His people out of Egypt. But what about moving His bones? What's up with that? Why was he asking them to dig up his bones and take them to Canaan? 
Well, to understand this request, we must understand the nature of Canaan as the promised land and what it foreshadowed. When Joseph's father Jacob died when he was in Egypt, he requested the same thing, that he would be buried in Canaan. And now Joseph, at the end of his life, makes this request. And it's a sign of their confidence that Canaan was the land of God's promise, that it was the place where God would dwell with his people, and that though they died, yet by the power of God and his promise, they would live. You see, Canaan is a foreshadow of the true promised land to come, the land where God dwells with his people and gives them life and life everlasting. Joseph had faith that God was preparing for him a land where death would finally be defeated. Joseph had resurrection faith. Now we must understand, it's not required that God's people be buried within the borders of Israel for us to experience the resurrection. Rather, Joseph's request displays his trust in the city that is to come. It displays his trust in the rest that God is preparing for his people. And ultimately, it displays his trust in a coming new creation in which God's people will be raised from their graves and dwell with him forever, eternally victorious over the grave. Will this be your final word? As you come to the end of your life, Will you have the faith of Joseph to believe that God will have victory? That God's promises are stronger than any earthly power? And that God's promises are stronger even than death itself? As the Lord Jesus hanged upon the cross and came to the point of his death, he said, It is finished. And in these words, Jesus declared that he had gained victory over sin and Satan and death. That he had come to be a sacrifice to cleanse away sin. And he did it. That he came to bind Satan and to deal him a mortal blow. And he did it. That he came to take on death and to take out the sting of death. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and he did it. And it is to the victory of Jesus that we must look when we come to our last day. Saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our last word must be victory in Jesus. One of the most defeated last words came from Pope Alexander VI. He was a rather controversial pope. He was not a priest, but rather he was a political figure who used his power and influence to gain the office of the pope. He was the last pope to not be a priest. And one of the figures that really drove towards the Reformation His reign was marked by moral corruption, scandal, and the pursuit of power. And it's reported that his last words before he died were, Wait a moment. Those present said that it was a plea for more time before he faced divine judgment. 
that he was not ready. And his last words reflected this fact. Wait, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. On the other hand, we have the final words of Hugh Latimer. He was a leader of the Reformation in England and one of the martyrs under Bloody Mary. And as he approached the pyre where he would be burned for his faith, he comforted his fellow martyr, Nicholas Ridley. He said to him, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Blessing, worship, victory, Through our death, the gospel will go forth and will shine forever and ever and ever. Yes, we come to our end, but it is merely the beginning. What will your final word be? I encourage you, don't wait. No matter how old or young you are, you need to begin to evaluate the words that you are speaking to the next generation the words that you're speaking to your children and your grandchildren? Are you blessing them with the promise of God, letting them know that their future is one that is filled with victory? Are you worshiping God, declaring that He is worthy as you age and as you struggle with health? Are you willing to say to the next generation, yes, there are many things that I am going through, but Jesus is worthy of it all? And as you're facing the grave, with confidence in Christ, are you saying with your life and with your words, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ? I want to encourage you. Take time even this day to pray and think about your testimony. Even write down what you would want the world to hear from you and begin to proclaim it now. So that through Jesus Christ, you can speak blessing, you can speak worship, you can speak victory in Jesus Christ alone. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you, Lord. And we know that in this world we will have tribulation, but we are to take heart because Christ has overcome this world. And so we pray, O God, that you would give us the faith and the trust to speak the blessings of your promised word. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give to us the grace of victory in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we do pray. Amen.